I had thought tonight to give a talk on the Brahma Viharas and the way that holding dukkha, as Nikki talked about, brings compassion, and the way that holding anicca and impermanence that Wes talked about brings equanimity. Um, But I might do that later. And I want to do a different kind of talk tonight that is uh, a story, and I have told it, but not for a long time at a retreat. And the reason I want to tell it is that it's um, a story of the journey that that we've embarked on together. Simone Weil, Christian mystic, writes, The danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And so she writes about losing touch with the possibilities of life, of awakening, liberation of the opening of the heart, of coming to wisdom. And we do forget it in the culture that we live in, or we're taught in some ways to focus on other things. I've become friends with a quite wonderful man in the Hawaiian Islands named Nainoa Thompson, who is the navigator on the Hawaiian double-held Polynesian voyaging canoe that re mm, that repeated and brought back alive the tradition of voyaging across the Pacific without instruments, um, and he learned from one of the last few surviving navigators in the far South Pacific. Um, Mao was his name, Um, how to navigate by the stars and the waves and watching the birds and seeing what was floating on the ocean. And in his training, he had to tie himself to the bottom of the boat for a long time to feel the five kinds of waves, including the deep waves that bounce off another island, and then set out into the biggest body of water that covers half the planet without any instruments and guide people and learn the knowledge that when Captain Cook landed in the South Seas, he was arguably the finest navigator in the British Royal Navy, Um, but they still um, couldn't do, uh, they could do um, latitude but not longitude. And so they would hug the coast. And he asked this navigator about the islands that were there. And the old man cleared the sand and put 120 stones on it that covered 4,000 square miles of the South Pacific and said, oh, here's where the islands are. And then took them out, went with Captain Cook. And even after days of rain and cloud and storms, anytime. 
Captain Cook would say, where is your island? He would say, oh, it's there. He knew in these ways that we can know, but that we've forgotten. So we're born, as Wes talked about last night, into a mystery of life. We're part of this evolution of the earth that gives birth to us. And the Buddhist texts begin with this beautiful phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. So we come to this kind of retreat and to uh, spiritual practice, sensing that there's bread there somewhere, remembering that it's possible. And it becomes for each of us unexpected. You never know quite what's going to happen. A bit of an adventure. And you know about adventures, don't you? This is from Wilhelmer Stephenson, the great polar explorer. The oldest, most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes who venture into countries at risk of their lives and bring back tales of the world beyond the ordinary. It can be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell an adventure, that risking your life constitutes the original definition of what's worth talking about. (laughs) But, he goes on, having an adventure shows that someone is incompetent, that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. (laughs) So one language for what we're doing is we're undertaking a process of initiation. Initiation going from the small sense of self, from the identity that we have of the ordinary way we live, which is important and a useful identity. It just doesn't happen to be who you really are but it's good to have it and use it and know it. And to open beyond this, to have some deep understanding of this mystery of life and your place in it. Now, initiation means, um, one definition is that you have to pass through the rocks through some chasm in the rocks that's so narrow that you can't bring any baggage along, that you have to divest yourself of your ideas and who you thought you were to open to something new, to find a trust, something that's deep and unshakable, a knowing of what is Dharma in you, that is your understanding of your place in life and what it means to navigate in this life. Now sometimes people come because they have a spiritual calling. That's a few of you. More often you come because you get what in Greek is called a katabas, a blow, a cancer diagnosis, the death of someone close to you, the loss of a job, an unexpected divorce, a a problem that's big, a failure some way that you haven't been able to control your life. Anybody had that? Don't bother. But something calls you, an illness, a loss, to say, wait a second, it's not just going to be easy sailing here. How do I navigate this life with its praise and blame and 
pleasure and pain and gain and loss. And I remember when I showed up at the gates of the monastery, um, you re- recapitulate the life of the Buddha. You come wearing these white clothes and they'll give you gold jewelry and it's like you're the prince. And then you leave all those at the gates. They welcome you and they take you deep into the forest to a special a glade that they've sanctified through a lot of prayers. Um, and they, you remove the white robes that you're wearing of the prince and they give you your ochre robes um, and they give you the very first practice. They said they welcome you into the fellowship for communion of monks and nuns. And the very first practice is the question, who are you? And they give you the practice of looking at the body and mind piece by piece and saying, am I this skin or the organs or the, all the things Wes was describing? You know, am I the feelings and the thoughts? Who are you? You've come to answer this great question. So you each come with your own sacred question. Everybody has it in their life and it gets touched when you come to the temple or the retreat. And once upon a time, long ago, when you were somewhat younger than you are now in India, there was a man named Nachiketa. This story is an ancient one. It predates the Buddha. And Nachiketa was bright, creative, thoughtful young man. And his father was a wealthy businessman. But as his father got old, he began to worry about his mortal soul, so to speak, and the afterlife and things that happen as you get a bit older. And so he went to the temple priest to talk about that. And they suggested that a way to ensure a really good rebirth was to give a very large gift to the temple. You know how it works, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll ask you about that later. Okay. <laughs> And so, being not only a businessman, but a proud man, he made a huge ceremony of this in the middle of the town square, or the village, or whatever, the town where he lived. And he brought his wealth, his gold and jewels, his oxen, and, and the priests were there, and they were, you know, there was um, a great ritual that was made, and then he stood up very proudly and said, and I give all of value, all I value to the temple, you know. And his son was disgusted. He was appalled by the idea that merit and virtue could be purchased in some kind of proud public display of ego in the middle of the town. Um, And he knew that that wasn't the deal, really, of what spirituality was about. And we know that. Joseph Campbell talks about much of religion as being an inoculation against the mystery. You go there to kind of have a little taste and then you don't really have to worry about things. But in fact, it's different than that. Nachiketa saw the hypocrisy of, the, of his father and of the society around him. The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They're the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they're the children of money. 
If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they're the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they're the children of loneliness. If your fear of truth owns you, they're the children of the fear of truth. It's tough, but it's also true. And whole societies can fool themselves. Under Gorbachev and Perestroika and Glasnost, the Soviet Union in 1987-88, when communism collapsed, canceled all history exams and in Isvestia, in the main newspaper, put under the headline um, that we have decided to end the passing of lies from generation to generation about our history the guilt of those who've deluded one generation after another, poisoning their minds and their children's souls with lies, is immeasurable. And today we are paying for those bitter fruits and we will not do it again. Imagine that in the American papers. You know, I'm sorry. We're actually going to talk about what happened in this land. Um, so Nachi Keita was there and he had that... Um, passion for truth that is often found in young people but that's in your heart as well that brings everyone in, in their own way on the journey. And so he said, he saw his father do this whole thing and his father said, again, I give all I value to the temple. And Nachiketa said, all you value, what about me? You know, um, all you value, kind of in a disrespectful way in the middle of this public ceremony. And his father got so hurt and upset by that that he said the equivalent of drop dead. But he said, I, I give you, you know, I give you to death. That was what he said. He was so upset and humiliated and so forth. And Nachiketa being an interesting young man said, I accept. All right, let me face death. You know, it's like young people who come and say, anything dangerous to do around here? You know, out of interest, uh, to test themselves, to learn who they are. So Nachiketa was interested. Um, and we have to get interested in it as well. Um, because it's coming. And it's part of what makes things so mysterious is that to use the phrase of Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda, death is stalking you. It's over your left shoulder. And any time you really want to get some good advice, turn and look over your shoulder and ask death for a little advice about how to live today. So Nachiketa said, yes. You know, I will, I will, you, you send me to death, I accept. This is really different than the airbag society that we live in, <laughs> which is, a, you know, we live in the society of comfort. And people come here too, it's like, where's the concierge, right? I'm coming to a, to a spa. And it's not that. You're here to be with yourself in a kind of naked way, with your own body and mind, without distraction, in stillness and silence. So then the next thing that Nachiketa did is he went somewhere very 
kind of out in the country, and he sat there. He just sat and stopped and did nothing for three days to enter the land of death. Sat without moving for three days. Now this may sound a little bit strange to you, but in fact, if you want to go into a Zen monastery, they don't just take you when you register online and sign up and send your money in. You have to do what's called Tangario, which is to say that you have to go sit outside the gates of the Zen temple, often in the winter in the snow, all day for some days. And they kind of look out and say, oh yeah, there's somebody else out there. Let's see how they long, long they last. And if you're out there and you show that you are truly interested for three days and three nights or however long it happens to be, they say, okay, I think we got a live one. Open the gates and, you know, welcome them in. You show the sincerity that you have, that you're willing to undergo this training and to discover in yourself something that's deeper than your ordinary way of being. So this is Nachiketa. Now, this is a little bit of a young man's journey. I remember very well when my wife at the time was giving birth to our daughter, Caroline. And because Caroline's head wasn't engaged fully, um, she was in the right position for being born head first, but her head wasn't quite engaged. Um, My Liana, my my ex-wife, she had um, labor that went on and on and on. You know, and we'd go to the hospital and they'd look and they'd say, yeah, two centimeters dilated, go back home and be labor all night long, uh, you know, every five minutes, contractions, back to the hospital the next day, yeah, three centimeters, go back home. It turned out to be about Nachiketas, like three days and nights. So sometimes, you know, you go to the temple, but sometimes in the giving of childbirth or... Um, in some other way in your life, you're called by something that's so compelling. You're there with someone who you love, who got hurt, and you just have to sit by their bedside day and night, and you're called to do something remarkable, and it takes you out of yourself. The mothers of the plaza in Argentina. Where are you? Twenty years ago, the mothers went to the plaza in front of the presidential palace and confronted a bureaucracy of horror. The mothers were fed up with feudal visits to military chaplains who wore army boots under their robes and the complaints office where the dictatorship denied inquiries about people whom for years it was systematically kidnapping, torturing, killing. When the women congregated at the plaza, police snapped at them to keep moving So the 14 mothers walked the plaza in slow circles. They kept coming back to protest, braving nightsticks, police dogs, military spies that infiltrated the group and killed three leaders. They say the mothers of the plaza were fearless, says Maria Antoklets, now 85, who moves with slow steps and enormous dignity. But we were scared to death. We learned to walk with fear, to live with fear, We had an obligation to find our children. The mothers still march every Thursday afternoon demanding justice. The ritual moves bystanders 
to tears as they walk elderly now arm in arm under their white headscarves. We never found our children, but in the plaza we went to school. We told our story. We cried together. It was our educational academy. The plaza saved us from madness. At 325, the plaza would be empty as a desert, and five minutes later, the mothers would appear like plants growing out of the subway station, the side streets. The people would come up and ask, who are you, teachers, pensioners? What are you protesting? It spread by word of mouth, and when our great poet Cortazar heard about it in Paris, he said, ah, the mothers are out. The military have already lost. So there is something of dedication that's asked if you take this journey, each in your own way. Whether it's the giving birth, and it is really a birth story, a birth to something bigger than who you take yourself to be. And there are so many descriptions of this descent which Nachiketa takes. If you read the oldest uh, Sumerian episodes of Inanna, um, the descent, and Arishkagel to the underworld, this was the journey that Nachiketa took. He sat for three days and three nights without moving, doing his tangario, and soon enough he came to the land of death. You interested? You could try it. Three days and nights, see what happens. And there he was in the land of Lord Yama, who is the king of death. And he asked, where is Lord Yama? But there were only his assistants there, pestilence, famine, aging, and war. (laughs) And this was a kind of unusual young man. People don't go to search for death. He said, where's death? And they said, well, he's actually out collecting rent. He'll be back in a few days. He's also called the great accountant, by the way. Not to put down accountants, but you know how it works, right? Um, And he was willing to face whatever it was, to not just live in the illusion of the society of his father and the hypocrisy. So now he's in the underworld, and they say that Lord Yama will not be back for three days, and Nachiketa waits. And he waits facing his fears and his misapprehensions and all of that, and he stays with it. And finally, death arrives. And he's told by his assistants, there's an unusual young man here. Usually people see you coming and they run the other way. And he came to seek you out. And death says, ah, how interesting. So Lord Yama goes to meet Nachiketa, greets him, and says, I beg your pardon for coming so late, for your having to sit and wait for three days. I'm sorry I've kept you waiting. And because I've kept you waiting, I will make it up to you and offer you three boons, three wishes. You know how these stories go, right? Three wishes for your journey because I see you are a young person intent on a journey of discovery. All right, so death offers you three wishes. What are you going to take? Nachiketa sits quietly, and first 
as he reflects. His first wish, he asks for forgiveness. He says, may my father see me as the day that I was born. Because he could feel in his heart that even though he was angry with his father and he saw all that hypocrisy, that there was some tremendous loss that had happened and that he couldn't proceed on his journey if he was still tied in conflict with his father. And so this is one of the critical steps in this journey, in this descent to open to liberation for every one of us. And we've talked about it. You begin and you see at times the lack of forgiveness, the unworthiness, the self-hatred, the the ways that you don't forgive somebody else who has caused you pain or suffering. And forgiveness is really the letting go of the heart, saying, yes, I I release you. It is a way... um, Somebody said forgiveness means letting go of all hope for a better past. But basically, forgiveness is for yourself. Um, Like the two ex-prisoners of war that I talk about very often in speaking of forgiveness, one says to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one says, no, never, because we were tortured and so forth. And the first one says, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? Whether it's the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats or the Northern Irish Catholics and Protestants or the Hutus and the Tutsis or the Palestinians and the Israelis, at some point someone has to say, it stops with me. I will not pass this suffering on to another generation, even if it's been unjust, which it has. It's like a woman I was working with who had come on retreats and was in a really bitter divorce and the husband who was a high-powered lawyer was trying to get custody and all the money and turn the children against his, their mother. And she came in one day and she said, I will do what I can to protect myself and my children, but I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children and to their generation. It stops with me. So there's a kind of beauty and courage to forgiveness. If you could read the secret history of your enemies, you would see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. That's Longfellow. That actually everybody, those who cause pain, those who receive pain, the way you cause pain to yourself, all of it actually is out of our wounding, out of our hurt, out of the history and the legacy and the generations of it. And the Zen priest Ryokan says, Oh, that my priest robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. So you can reflect on this in your own journey. What is it that asks your forgiveness? Because without it, you can't move on. And this was Nachiketa's first wish and first boon. And I see it so often. Working with 
vets who come back from Iraq or these men's retreats with young gang kids who come trying to get out of the gang. And the vets who speak, it's one thing for them to talk about what happened, how terrible it was, because the theater of war in the Middle East is very confusing. You don't know who's an enemy and who's not, and who's got a strapped-on bomb to their body, and all these things. It's very, very hard to know. And they'll say, I can't tell you what I saw. But worse, they'll say, I can't tell you what I did. And that's really the heartbreak, that when you get combat vets together, the thing that really heals them is to be able to tell the stories of the of the weights that they carry on their soul. Not just, I can't tell you what I saw, but I can't tell you what I had to do. And without receiving, without telling your story, without receiving forgiveness, without offering yourself forgiveness for what you've lived through and survived, um, you can't be free. You're chained to the past. I was at a little conference that I helped to moderate and arrange with the Dalai Lama and about 20-some people who'd come out of um, prison, who'd been done long years in prison, um, and had been part of various prison dharma projects around the country. And so we wanted the Dalai Lama to hear about the prison system, which is terrible, this huge, you know, racist prison industrial complex, um, poverty prisons. Um, And we were sitting in a circle with the Dalai Lama, and people were telling him stories, and his eyes got wide, because he only, he comes here and they put him in nice mansions and give him, like, the best of America, and he doesn't see you know, the suffering in the society so much. So he was kind of shocked. He brought with him two young nuns who had, the, part of the drop she 14, who had been in prison since they were teenage girls. They were 15 years old. They were imprisoned in Tibet for reciting their prayers out loud and praying to the Dalai Lama. And um, so the this was, you know, a circle of 20-some men and women who'd done hard time, 20 years in Oklahoma or Oregon State Penitentiary or whatever, telling their stories and how the redemption that came from Dharma to teach them what was possible. And then Dalai Lama asked these two nuns to talk, and they described being thrown in prison, um, being tortured with cattle prods, being um, starved, all the kinds of terrible things. And and Dalai Lama said, so what did you do? How was it for you? He said, were you afraid? And they said, yes, we were really afraid. He said, what were you afraid of? We were afraid that we would lose our compassion. These, they were now like 24 or something, they'd escaped from Tibet. This, our big fear was that we'd lose our compassion. And so how did you deal with that? The Dalai Lama asked them. He said, oh, we prayed all the time for our guards and our enemies because we could see that they were making the karma that was going to cause them incredible torture sometime in the future. And we didn't want what we were experiencing to happen to anybody else. So 
the worst thing would have been if we lost our compassion. And they sat there they, like these angels and these guys and men and women who'd been in, done a long time and were beautiful themselves and quite brave. I remember this guy, big tattooed guy from Texas prison said, I seen brave, I never seen anything like you two girls. It was beautiful. So Nachiketa said, I ask for the boon of forgiveness that I might forgive myself, that my father might forgive me, that I could start over again. Second boon. He reflected. And he said, I would like to have the blessing of See what the right translation of this word is. Well, one translation is fire, but the best translation is aliveness or fullness. I want the blessing that I can live my life fully and completely. I want the blessing of fire of full energy and aliveness. He didn't want to live a half-lived life. He wanted to look at his path of life as, again, Castaneda says, this is path of a heart. Is it really what I should be living and can I do it fully? Go ahead, light your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come. And they will fire up their forge and put you on the anvil and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So when you ask to go on the journey, you ask to open to life itself, to its beauty and its majesty and its uh, terrors and fears and all of it. Otherwise, you won't be free. And this is really what Nachiketa asked for. He could sense there was a possibility of living absolutely fully, and he wanted that. I remember a friend of mine who had done a series of retreats and then her daughter got in a terrible accident and was put into a rehab hospital and they said she would probably never regain her language completely and never regain her mobility. And this friend of mine moved into the rehab hospital for a year with her daughter picked her hand up, put it down, picked it up, put it down, picked it up, and put it down. Mouth words, made her speak words. Now her daughter graduated law school. Has a, she simply wouldn't give up on her daughter. It's not to say that always works, but there was something about the fire or the aliveness or the dedication that was bigger than all the problems that she faced. During World War II, a Norwegian pastor who had worked underground saving all those who were in jeopardy, Jews, gypsies, gay people, was dragged into the Gestapo headquarters and placed in a chair opposite the German officer. Before the interrogation began, the Gestapo chief took out of his holster a German Luger and placed the pistol right on the desk between himself and the Norwegian pastor. Without a moment's hesitation, the pastor reached into his satchel, pulled out his Bible, placed the Bible right next to the Luger, 
And the German officer demanded, why did you do that? And the pastor replied, you have placed your weapon on the table. So have I. And this is really what Nachi Keita asked for. He asked that he be given the courage to go through his life to face what life was fully and openly, no matter what happened to him. It was really the courage of heart. And it doesn't mean that it's easy or that you're going to be different than you are. Here you are sitting on this retreat and everything happens, doesn't it? And you sit there just quietly. You all look so good to tell you. (laughs) Peaceful and quiet. We come here, it just feels so peaceful. Inside it's different. So Yitzhak Perlman, one of the greatest violinists in the world, had polio in the early 1950s when he was a boy. I had polio too in 1953, and I was put in the hospital and paralyzed, and somehow I got better. I got out after some weeks, but he didn't. And so he walks with crutches, and when he does a concert, he comes on stage, and he uses his crutches to get there, takes off his leg braces, and then prepares to play. He was doing a concert in New York with the New York Symphony at Lincoln Center, doing a violin concerto, and halfway through the concert, he was playing this amazing concerto. There was a loud pop. A string broke on his violin. And everybody in the hall could hear it and wonder, oh, it's going to happen next. You know, he's got this amazing Stradivarius. Will somebody come on and restring it? Will he get another violin? Will he hobble off stage? He sat there quietly, closed his eyes, And then he signaled for the conductor to begin to play again. And he re-entered the concerto playing with beauty and passion. And those who knew music, the violin and the concerto, could see, those who could watch closely, that he was modulating what he was playing, reconfiguring it, so that he could play it all on three strings. When it was done, huge outburst of applause. He quieted people down, wiped his brow, raised his bow, and then spoke in a kind of pensive tone. You know, he said, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. We're all broken in certain ways. We've all suffered in certain ways. Um, That's also part of what makes your music magnificent. It's what makes your heart open and what's give you the access to compassion for yourself and understanding for others. And so this is what Nachiketa asked for. May I have the passion, the aliveness to accept life and to enter it fully. In the Tibetan practice, you actually pray for difficulties. You say, I'm going on a retreat. May I have enough difficulties that I really learn compassion, that I really learn letting go, that I really learn wisdom and equanimity and graciousness. Bring them on, basically. You know.
So maybe you can feel, and I have to say this in a way that you understand, that what you're doing here isn't self-improvement. It's not like, you know, more therapy and working out at the gym and dieting and stuff. I talked about that already, I think. Um, It's really facing the mystery of your humanity in the 10,000 joys and sorrows of it, the the glory of it, the, the tainted glory of it, to use Oscar Wilde's phrase. Tamara Engel, who was a meditation student, wrote this as she was dying. She said, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, every fearful fantasy, and you can imagine how they are when you're really sick with cancer. For every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness for the trusting spirit that carries me now, even as I face my death. So there's something so profound about simply being able to face life as it is and say, yes, this is the mystery of human incarnation. And to rest in awareness that can accept it all with openness, understanding, compassion, or even not openness. Watch it open and close. does, doesn't it? And say, yeah, this too. All right, so Nachiketa's got two wishes so far, right? Aliveness, forgiveness first, and aliveness. Now third wish time, third boon. And you can see on the retreat, to the extent that you've let go, you've forgiven, you've been compassionate with yourself, you've stayed steady, we feel it in the meetings that we have with you, you've gotten quieter, you're more settled, you're more present, you're more alive, you're more open. It's really beautiful to see. It's quite visible. And you know, it doesn't mean every person and every day at each time is like that. But there's a general, beautiful settling. And what becomes important then is to actually inhabit it, to feel the compassion, the calm, the steadiness, the sense of grace or beauty, the stillness that comes. Um, Not just to focus on the difficulties. The difficulties are the gateway to well-being, to let yourself actually inhabit and dwell in the factors of enlightenment, of calm and equanimity and peacefulness and joy as they come, to let yourself feel the loving kindness that grows in you. So here you are growing in this as Nachiketa was, forgiveness and then aliveness and presence. What would your third wish be? He looks at Lord Yama and said, I ask for the boon of immortality. And Lord Yama looks back and he says, are you sure? Remember, this is your last wish. Here, look at this. And as if to transmit to Nachiketa's mind, like on a widescreen TV, maidens sense pleasures, 
the best chariot, you know, the equivalent of the Ferrari of the time, right? All the amazing horses, a palace for the prince, garden security, grandchildren, you know, the Lexus, whatever it is. You get the whole deal. Don't, are you sure you got I me mean, one more wish? Look at what you could have. Anachiketa reflected. Because those are our temptations. We all have our temptations, don't we? You know, and you're sitting here and there you are just being present and then your mind says, yeah, but let's think about lunch, you know, and food. Let's think about some meditative state that we heard about. You know, you have your temptations. So he sat there seeing all the temptations that come, all the possibilities, and then he asked Lord Yama, he said, I have a question for you before I decide. He said, will not all of these things that you've shown me soon enough return to your domain? Which is to say, they're transitory, aren't they? No matter what they were. And Lord Yama said, yes, it's true. He said, then I ask for immortality. And Lord Yama says, I will grant you in this way. And he gave him a gift. He went and he came back with this present that he placed in his hand, and it was a beautiful mirror. And he says, Nachiketa, look deeply into this mirror and ask yourself the question, who am I? Are you this body? This meat body, you know, that's made of broccoli and, you know, tortillas and... I mean, are you really hamburgers? Come on, right? Well, are you your feelings? They keep changing, you know? Maybe you're your thoughts. I hope not, right? (laughs) Wes talked about this so well last night. So who are you really? There's this small sense of self that you take yourself to be, but who are you really? A good friend of ours, of Wes and mine anyway, is Wavy Gravy. Wavy Gravy of the hog farm fame of... Woodstock, the, you know, the, uh, the clown and maestro of Woodstock and the founder or one of the founders of the Seva Foundation that has eye hospitals around the world and so forth. But one of his jobs is to work as a clown, one of his jobs, one of his loves is to work as a clown in children's hospitals. And he goes in and sometimes he says riddles and bubbles and all those things he said, but then sometimes I go into the tough places, like the burn unit. He said, and here I was in this burn unit, and there was one room where the windows are kind of closed, and I look in, and I see this kid there who'd been really badly burned, 11, 12 years old, mind-boggling, my jaw dropped. I became unglued. He looked like a piece of burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there. You could hardly find where this kid was. No way of pinning a person to it. And I remember back to the anti-war movement carrying the picture of napalm children. And here was the kid right in front of me. And I was overwhelmed. What is it going to be like if he lived? What if this were my child? What if this happened to me? So there we were, burnt toast, an unglued clown. (laughs) Quite a sight, I'll bet. And all of a sudden, some other little kid comes whizzing by with his IV pole, right? And, and um, he stops, pushes around me, looks into the bed at this other kid, and comes out with, hey, you ugly, just like that. 
And the burnt kid made this gurgling laugh kind of noise and his face moved around and all of a sudden I just saw his eyes and we locked there and things dissolved. It was like going through a tunnel right to his heart and all the burnt flesh disappeared. And I saw him in a way that was nothing to do with this body. You ugly. He probably knows how ugly he is more than anybody else. And if he's got to deal with people hanging around with saliva coming out of their mouths, it's going to be extra horrible. But if somebody just meets him in the eye and says, hey, what's happening? You want to hear a riddle? So he said, being able to look you ugly in the eye, that's done a lot for me. He said, because once I can do that, I can go on and see what can be done to ease things up. And you get all kinds of inspirations. And he starts to tell the stories. Thomas Merton writes, then it was as if I saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the place where neither sin nor knowledge nor ideas or philosophies can touch the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves that way, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. He said, I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And so Nachiketa was given the mirror and said, look deeply, who are you really? Who got born into this body? Who's hearing these words? What is this consciousness that's not made of body, not made of feelings or thoughts, but the timeless awareness itself? Nisargadot says, you know yourself only through the senses you take yourself to be what they suggest. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify with everything so easily. For me, this is impossible. For wisdom sees I am nothing, and love sees I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. It's not a philosophy. It's an experience. You know it. You know it walking in the mountains, or making love, or listening to amazing music, or sitting at this deathbed of someone who disappears like a silently like a falling star or at the birth of a child there's something so mysterious about being human and it's not this body it's this spirit rumi i lived for a 100 million years as a mineral, I died and was born a vegetable. I lived for years as a vegetable, I died and became an animal. I lived for however long Wes would say, millions of years as an animal and became a human. Still are an animal, right? Human animal. What have I ever lost by dying? Somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh, um, tell, say something about death, birth and death. Are you afraid to die? He's 86 or something like that. He said, you think that this body is who I am? He said, all around the world, people are reading books of Thich Nhat Hanh. People are watching YouTube videos of Thich Nhat Hanh. People are hearing these words. People are doing these practices. He said, this isn't me. You don't see me. I am part of thousands, maybe millions of people, of their voices and consciousness. This is who I am. How could I ever die? Where could I go? 
So this is your task as well, to turn your attention and ask, who is it that's listening to this talk? Who is it that was born into this body? In India, they say that you learn this sometimes with a teacher or a guru, like Wavy Gravy in that story, or Thomas Merton. There's a phrase called the glance of mercy, that the teacher looks at you with so much love and sees who you really are, and you go, oh yeah, I remember now. I remember. So here's Nachi now. He looks in the mirror in the face of death. And like Thich Nhat Hanh, he realizes that who he is, that, that consciousness itself is unborn, undying, timeless, the space of awareness. Wes said it last night. He said, try not to be aware. Okay? On the count of three. Stop being aware. Do anything you can. Close your eyes, stuff up your ears. I'm not going to be aware. Try and stop awareness. One, two, you ready? On your mark, get set. How far did you get? You know? It's completely trustworthy. You can rest in it. It is, you are in the eternal present, in the reality of the present, and you have all these stories about who you are. Who you are is awareness itself. Unborn, undying, silent. And so Nachiketa sat there and saw the great dance of life and how people live in illusion and get caught in the small sense of self, and that's fine. But he realized that that's not really our nature. As Nisargadat said, wisdom sees I am nothing, love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Or the kind of beautiful Zen poems that Wes reads in the morning. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming and going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Or Isa, though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms. So Nachiketa awakened in the face of death, and he touched that which is in each of us, which is who you really are. The space that allowed this retreat to happen, that returned you home to awareness. The freedom that when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness of spirit, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. It cannot be taken from you. And Nachiketa was liberated. Beautiful. But then what? How did he get back? This is the last secret. And there's a beautiful story of it, of black elk, the Ogallala Sioux, great Native American medicine man who had a vision as a shaman on top of Harney Peak and then revisited it toward the end of his life. 
And he said he sat there and the vision was given to him that his people and the land was, he called it a sacred hoop, a sacred circle in which everything had its place. And then he looked across the wide world and he saw that every community and every people had their sacred hoop and that they were part of the great circle of life. He said, and I sat in the middle of our sacred hoop seeing far and wide more than I can say and then I realized that the place that I sat, the center of the sacred hoop was everywhere and that every place is holy ground. So the last secret is that death and birth are not separate and that wherever you are is the place of awakening. And when Nachiketa opened himself to not be that small sense of self, but to rest in eternity, he immediately found himself there where he'd started. He didn't have to go a single step to return. Every place is holy ground. And from that sacred vision, I think it's Gandhi who said, if you don't find God in the next person you meet, it's a waste of time looking further. From that sacred vision, there's a sense of perfection. And it's not the perfection that is the absence of birth and death and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, because it will all change. It's part of the cycle of life. But it's a sense of the perfection of the dance and your place in it. And you take your seat here and not one step leads away from what's sacred and what's free. It's nearer than near. I like nothing more in the world than just listening, sitting on my ass, being happy, doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for a few minutes, you'd realize that getting off this ass would be a crime against nature. (laughs) It's Laurie Chapman. Meditation isn't a grim duty. You go through difficulties. You have to sit through your loneliness and boredom and all those layers of things that open up. You have to allow for the great heart of compassion and forgiveness to open for yourself about all the ideas of how life was supposed to be and how you were supposed to have been treated and you know how you've treated or mistreated yourself. And then you find that gift of mercy and forgiveness. And you find that you can give yourself to life, the aliveness that Nachiketa asked to be fully present for this. I mean, what else is there? And then the mystery, timeless mystery. And you feel yourself amazed to be alive and part of everything. And Gandhi says, I believe in the essential unity of life and therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains, 
and that if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And you feel that the work that you do is really the work for the world, and you'll get up and serve as you do. But you serve not because, oh, the poor people over there, but it's us, it's family, it's life itself. And the heart becomes joyful and liberated and free. And very simple. You discover within you the great heart of the Buddha. So let's sit for a moment. So what you are doing in your practice is um, really something quite beautiful, difficult and beautiful. Matthew has offered and wants to encourage anyone who would like, after this sitting that ends at 9.30, to continue practicing in here from 10 to 12. Correct? Um, He wants to encourage those of you at this point in the heart of the retreat You may not need quite as much sleep as you usually do, or you may feel that things have settled or that you want to be awake and are drawn to sit further tonight. It's very um, common in the beautiful temples of Asia for people to sit up all night, the new moon, the full moon, the quarter moon, certain other days, just to make that part of the devotion of practice, you and Nachiketa. So if you have that inclination, um, I encourage you to stay up. And now it's time to go and enjoy some walking, or not, as you like, but do it anyway, right? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.